Welcome to this special edition of the Times Opinion podcast from the Labour Party conference in Manchester. And today we're going to be looking at Ed Miliband's big speech to the conference. I'll be joined by Red Box editor Phil Webster to look at the list of 100 leading people on the left. Who's up and who's down? And also joined by Marcus Roberts and Matthew Elliott from left and right, two of the country's leading campaigners on what they've learned from the independence referendum in Scotland. Well, Ed Miliband has just given his speech. It wasn't quite the 80 minutes we dreaded, but it was quite long. It's about 75, wasn't About it? 75, as long as that. I'm joined here by Jenny Russell and Matthew Paris. Uh, Jenny, instant reaction. I'm afraid I thought that it was a speech that was going to convert the already converted, and I don't think it had anything in it for the swing voters. If you already think that Ed Miliband and the Labour Party have their hearts in the right place and that they're going to deliver good things for the nation because they've got better principles than the Tories, you'd have gone away applauding. If you wondered how they were going to actually deliver apple pie and what the ingredients were and how they were going to bake them, you'd have been left a bit lost. And I'm afraid I thought that was a missed opportunity. I wanted to be much more convinced than I was. And isn't that all that Ed Miliband needs to do, though, with the right split, the boundary review having failed? He needs to get 35% of the vote. He's playing maybe a cynical game, but he's playing a game that still could put him in number 10 Downing Street. No, I think that probably is his strategy, but I think that um, it's a dangerous one because I don't think you can count on the fact that if you only speak to the people who already want to vote for you, that that's sufficient. I think you actually owe it to the country to say, we're in dire economic straits and here are some of the things that we are going to do practically to change your lives because I don't see what many of the practical mechanisms were. And that is my view, I think, Matthew Paris. I, I actually found it quite insulting in some respects. Here's a Prime Minister in the middle of a period when the deficit in our country is one of the biggest in our history and there was nothing really from the man who wants to be Prime Minister saying how he would put this right. Yes, I, I can tell you are really quite <laughs> quite angry <laughs> yes, about I am. it. Is, I, is that quite angry for Tim? Yes, it sound well, angry no, no, even me. for Tim that's quite <laughs> He's really cross. Um, oh, really? I'm, 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 I've heard so many of these party leader's speeches. It was just another party leader's speech. It it wasn't particularly good. It wasn't particularly bad. It had some quite good passages. The line about you're on your own, I thought was quite strong. But the problem is that such is the head of steam that has now built up against Ed Miliband and his leadership, that this had to be a transformational speech, really breaking out of the Labour Party mould, I think, for anybody to want to say so. And I'm afraid, rather like eating that bacon bap, we're waiting for him to stumble. And though he didn't stumble today, he didn't soar. It, it pleased, it pleased Labour. It, it pleased the Hall. It'll do, actually, but it won't it, do more than do. It'll, it'll do in what sense? It'll do to help him win the next general election. It, it will do to shore up his position within his own party. There were no great hostages to fortune given there. No new ideas that I could see at all. No new way of delivering government services. What the speech breathed was spending, spending, spending as the solution to Britain's problems. He made no spending commitments, but the the speech breathed spending and there were no other ideas in it. But then that's a Labour leader's speech. They're all like that. Isn't that the danger, Jenny Russell, is that... 
This is a party that I've noticed a lot of anger on the fringe. I've probably been to the wrong kind of fringe meetings. I've gone to Unite and other meetings. But there's an awful lot of heartfelt anger at the consequences of the austerity that's already been introduced by the coalition. And I think there's a lot in this party who think that if only Labour is elected, this man who's just spoken gets the opportunity to increase NHS spending. All that pain's going to go away. And it isn't. The hardest cuts are still ahead. This could be a party that's torn apart if Ed Balls and Ed Miliband win the next election and do what the deficit requires to be done. Yes, I think that is the real problem because Matthew is quite right to say that your on your own was a very sensible solution to offer people because that is indeed what the Tories have done. They've taken away lots of the supports of the welfare state. They've made sure that people's jobs are insecure. They've done nothing about zero-hours contracts. So people have got much less of stability behind them than they had. So it is very good on diagnosing that. But the solution has to be something other than a vacuous togetherness. And in a way, what he was complaining about is very much like the SNP campaign in Scotland, the idea that there's some evil out there, and if only we were in power, which is the SNP's yeah. line, everything will get better. And yet there's no explanation of how we will make it better. There are some pledges he can deliver. I was convinced by the apprenticeships, the idea that unless a company produces a plan to give people apprenticeships, they won't get government procurement contracts. That's excellent. I'm sure that's deliverable. I believe that regulation of the banks would be a good thing. I believe that he'll build more houses. But so many other of the key pledges about we will make your living standards higher and we'll make this a better place and we will save the NHS, the mechanisms for delivering that simply weren't there. What do you think of the beginning bit? At the same time that Ed Miliband was speaking, uh, President Obama was giving a conference in White House. In the White House, a statement on the action of, over Syria, which the US forces have taken. Ed Miliband gave the very distinct impression that unless there was a United Nations Security Council resolution, his party wouldn't back action, which right, well, essentially I... could give Vladimir Putin a veto over that action. Well, he wasn't quite clear because he didn't say we will, we will not back it unless. He said I would want to see a UN yes. resolution, which, which I think is a sensible thing to do. You want to have united action and it does give him some wriggle room. But generally on foreign affairs, I felt that there was an extraordinary unevenness. Basically, he only alluded to three situations. One was Syria, where he was saying we do want to act against something that's as evil as ISIS, essentially. The other was to say I'm going to make sure that we solve the Middle East in a two-state solution. Well, good luck with that. You know, that would be the second Labour leader after Tony Blair to think that he had a solution that's not worked out so well for, for Blair. And the third thing, absolutely bizarrely, out of nowhere, was the sudden announcement that his third foreign policy priority, apparently, was going to be sending an envoy for lesbian, gay and bisexual rights around the world. And I thought that was extraordinary. How would we take it if the Ugandan government suddenly said, we're sending an envoy to Britain to persuade you to ban homosexuality? I don't quite know who we think we are or why that was the third issue facing the globe today. He, he's a delightful man, Michael Cashman, but does the rest of the world... Lord, really Lord, Lord Cashman. Lord Cashman, Cashman indeed. <laughs> you know, I agree with that. But on the United Nations, you know, if you're leader of the Labour Party, you can't make a speech about international um, forces bombing places without saying that you want to involve the United Nations. I thought that was perfect, perfectly fair. And one line you might have liked, Matthew, perhaps, was when uh, Ed Miliband said David Cameron doesn't stay awake at night worrying about the United Kingdom, but he stays awake at night worrying about the United Kingdom Independence Party. Yes, well, I think you share that concern about the Prime Minister, don't you? Yes, and I think you're probably, in this sense, bedfellows with the Prime Minister. <laughs> but, uh, you, <laughs> wake, you wake up thinking about the you know, UK Independence Party. No, I, I, I thought that was quite brave, because he knows that a lot of Labour 
voters are tempted by UKIP and a lot have voted UKIP and he wasn't he wasn't afraid to stand up and say we're just taking no notice of UKIP. Yeah. Good for him. And just before we finish, on the style, Jenny, what did you make of all these I met Gareth, I met goodness knows how many yeah, people, so usually in parks it seemed to be. They all do it. Is it, it just seemed to be a lot of it. But, but that, to be fair to a politician, of course, what you spend your life doing is meeting people and they talk to you and they tell you their stories. And if you're going to discover something about their lives, you can't say, my friend X, you no longer have very many friends in politics. You know, yes. you depend for your understanding of the world on people, people telling you their stories. Unfortunately, the way it was woven into the speech was a bit clunky. You know, I met Gareth, I met Rosie, I met Alan, I can't remember who yeah, they yeah. were. The person next to me was totting them up and there were nine of them. Yes, but you wait. Next year, George Osborne will have met all kinds of people and David Cameron will have met all kinds of people. Well, I hope they do meet all kinds of people, but what worries me when Ed gives these stories is that the essence of them, I'm absolutely sure, is completely true. When he quotes what they've said to him, He's clearly misremembered because nobody ever speaks in the sentences which Ed <laughs> has produced. They all sound like policy wonks who've been yes. studying papers in front of them. So Jen that, that doesn't ring that true. Jenny, Matthew, thanks very much. Pleasure. Well, I'm joined by uh, Phil Webster, editor of the Red Box email and website that if you are not subscribing, you should be signed up to. It's a great digest of everything that's happening in politics delivered to your email inbox before 8.30 a.m. every morning. And one of the things, Phil, in your latest email is a guide to the 100 top people on the left of British politics. And I think next week we're getting it on the right of uh, British politics yeah. when we're at the Tory party conference. But what is this list about? What is it trying to educate our readers about? It's trying to tell us who's up and who's down in the various categories of British politics. So this week it's, it's the left. And as you say, on Redbox today, we've got the full top 100 list. Ed Miliband, not surprisingly, comes out on top. He is the Labour leader after all. Uh, but I, it uh, can be revealed that had uh, Alex Salmond won the referendum last week, he would have been number one and Miliband would have slipped down to number two. He wouldn't have been in Britain though, so how could he be in the top 100? Uh, well, he would have been there. He would have, for 18 more months. In anyway. fact, yes, it would have been uh, March. Uh, he would have been able to hold that, hold that until <laughs> March next year had he had he won. So that's, that's the idea, just to see the way things are moving. And uh, Ed is at the top, but he's got three rising fast members of his shadow cabinet in the top 10 now, which is quite surprising. Gordon comes back. Gordon was out for a year, but he's back because uh, of his great performance. Uh, the great performance. Yeah, and so is Blair. Blair's been putting himself around quite a lot recently, and he's back in as quite an influential figure. Interestingly, one of the things about your list is there's a few celebrities there, people like Russell Brand. So that's a sort of acknowledgement that how politics is changing now. It isn't just the people we put in Parliament who are the influencers. It's, it's authors like and writers like Owen Jones, it's comedians like Russell Brand. Yes, I think the, uh, the, the growth of social media is really the reason for this. People use social media to get out their, their opinions. I heard um, Andy Murray apologising this morning for what he did last week uh, by coming out for yes in the, in the Scottish campaign. Do we People, think he'd had a glass or two we, of wine he, in that he, evening? I think he's said that he'd had a few, right. uh, which is unusual for him, but, but, but I think he's between tournaments. But I think that's the reason. Uh, Ian Dale, who uh, compiled this list with a, an expert panel, 
was pretty dismissive of uh, Russell Brand in his little write-up on Redbox this morning. Uh, he doesn't rate him all that much at all, but Brand had that head-to-head -head with Paxman where he called for a political revolution in Britain. He then had about six million people uh, watching it on YouTube. He's got his reward. He's in number 10 in the red box list. The, the proudest achievement of his life so far to be in the red box top I, 100 list. I would have thought so. They can't. You can only go downhill after that, I would have thought. <laughs> so you mentioned the uh, people probably most people are familiar with who are going up the, the list, people like Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. Give us two or three names rising within the Labour ranks who readers, listeners to this podcast, should be looking out for as possible big beasts of the Labour's tomorrow? I'll give you three tips for the top, and they, they are Andy Burnham, who's the Shadow Health Secretary now, used to be the Health Secretary in the last Labour government, Chakra Amuna, who's the Shadow Business Secretary, and Rachel Reeves, Shadow Work and Pensions. They are all moved up in this list, and they are certainly moving up within the Labour Party. Uh, Andy's been on a bit of a journey. He was an out-and-out Blairite. Uh, he's moved... Uh, He's moved to the left, away from, uh, away from Blairism. He now is trying to appeal to a wider constituency with lab within Labour, notably the unions. Is that uh, because he wants to be a future leader? I think, I think Andy's a certain contender to be uh, a future leader. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Reeves, economist, uh, husband works in a very big job at the Treasury. She's made a very swift rise, only elected in 2010, became Shadow Chief Secretary, now Shadow Work and Pensions, highly rated by everybody who works with her in the, in the Shadow Cabinet. And Chucker himself looks sometimes a little bit too ambitious, Nigerian dad, Irish mother. He, I imagine he would be Peter Mandelson's choice because he's the one who spouts Blairism more than the, more than the others. But he's uh, almost been on a journey in reverse of Andy Burnham because he started off in the Compass Group in the Labour Party, didn't he? Yes. Which is more traditional left, and yet he's now the one sounding like the uber-smooth Blairite. Yes, but if you look down the list of those MPs who backed Ed Miliband for the leadership, and there weren't that many, you'll find his name. So he knows where he's going, and uh, he knows which side to be on. But I think, I think what he's saying now is, is, uh, is quite interesting. I think Labour activists quite like to hear what he says about appealing to an English audience as well as a United King Kingdom audience and doing the things that Labour needs to do to win England as well as the whole of the United Kingdom. Something that the Scottish vote made them think very carefully about. Brilliant. Phil, will you come back next week in Birmingham and talk to us about the top 100 people on the right? I would love to. See you then. So I'm joined by two people, two of the probably most effective campaigners in British politics. Matthew Elliott, who ran the Nota AV campaign and was founder of the Taxpayers Alliance, and Marcus Roberts from the Fabian Society, who's campaigned actively on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, Matthew Elliott, if I can start with you. When you were watching the um, uh, independence referendum campaign, it must have been fascinating for you as the other the last person to uh, run a successful referendum campaign in the UK. What did the main things that you learned watching? It was fascinating to watch it again and just seeing the twists and turns on the way. And also like the No to AV referendum, how it only really gained momentum in some ways in the final month of the campaign. That was fascinating. 
And I think there are lots of things to learn from it. Perhaps the biggest one is um, the question of which side you're on and how Alex Salmon was very good at using his yes side to have a very sort of positive message and get momentum on the basis of that. And because the no side, because it's no, often was perhaps more analytical or what have you, they find it more difficult until the final stages to get momentum. And one of the interesting things I thought Alex Salmon really tried to frame the campaign was he wasn't just asking for independence from England and the rest of the UK, but independence from the political class, independence from Westminster. And that, of course, was one of the big themes that you had in the No to AV campaign. You made it, in part, a referendum on the political class. Absolutely. I mean, this anti-politician sentiment is now a very potent force in the UK. And, of course, it was aided by the MP's expenses scandal before the last election. But we see that a lot of successful campaigns, the North East Says No campaign against the Regional Assembly about 10 years ago, that very much tapped into a similar vein as well. And now, of course, the rise of UKIP. So this force is out there in a very big way. Marcus Roberts from the Fabian Society, you brought Blair McDougall to this Labour Party conference. He ran the successful No Thanks campaign and you held a meeting um, in Manchester uh, Town Hall with him. And his message was very much, seemed to me to be, follow the data, follow the opinion polling and don't be too distracted by what the chattering class, people like me, commentators in newspapers, are saying. That's exactly right, because I think what Blair and the Better Together campaign did do right was they understood what messages they needed to sell to which audiences over a very long period of time in order to win the argument. And all alongside that, there was a lot of backroom quarterbacking and back chatter from the press saying that Blair and the Better Together campaign needed a more positive message or needed a different kind of policy focus. And whilst some of that was true at the end, for most of the time the data was pretty clear. Making arguments about the pound, making arguments about families' economic security was the way to go. And what's interesting about this is it shows that data, even when applied throughout a campaign in the face of a media onslaught, can still win out. And you found that, Matthew Elliott, didn't you, in the No to AV campaign. A lot of the messages you had chosen were really criticised by nearly every single commentator. You were certainly criticised for negativity, but you stuck by your messages because of opinion polling. I get, yes, we did. We did our research and we followed the messages. And um, I, don't the also, the... I don't know what all this says about my profession, <laughs> really, and the job that I'm doing. I think you're right. Follow the numbers, follow the research. And with No to AV, of course, it was right after the um, election. Um, the country was going into a period of what they felt was austerity, with people talking about spending cuts and what have you. So cost was a big issue, and that really chimed with voters at the time. So I think the key lesson to learn is, you know, really get your facts straight and just you know, follow those messages that it says you should. But at the same time, I'd say, be aware of how the data can change. Of course. Um, the Better Together campaign tested the woman that said no advert, which was very controversial, and it tested very well. But the SNP counter response to it was so strong that the advert's advantages turned into a disadvantage. When Better Together saw that in their numbers, they pulled the ad and adjusted messaging accordingly. So keep polling, if not keep, keep reading polling. the columnists. Um, one of the things I was very interested from what Blair McDougall said at your meeting, Marcus, was we're looking forward to potentially the next referendum in UK politics, which if David Cameron wins the next election will be on our membership of the European Union. 
his view was that the campaign to leave was a very soft vote. And he thought that if David Cameron was able to present that he got a deal from Brussels, that it was the status quo plus reform, he thought the campaign to keep Britain inside the European Union would have the upper hand. Absolutely. And there are three big factors that will determine who wins that referendum, even when it comes. The first is, who wins the argument over the working class vote? In, in the Scottish referendum, we saw a third of Labour 2010 voters voting for yes. They were overwhelmingly working class voters. The second is who controls the question. Who gets to be yes and who gets to be no? There's a lot of polling that indicates just being yes is worth about two points, actually, okay. which in a closer referendum is going to be all the difference. And the third thing which ties these two forces, points together is who's making the argument for political change. Because if the argument for staying in the EU is an argument for the political status quo, Britain will leave the EU. If the argument for staying in the EU is an argument for sweeping political and economic change, then that will tap into a lot of the discontent working class voters feel, and that can build a majority the other way around. And you think it really is sweeping, because in a way a lot of people hear sweeping political change, and that sounds almost unsettling, but your view is that's the mood of the country at the moment. They don't want modest change, they don't want modest reform particularly the people at the bottom, the working class, the people who haven't had a pay rise for a number of years, they do want a big change. They want a big change, but they want it delivered carefully and over a long period of time. Okay. They don't want it delivered overnight, and that's why a lot of both middle-class voters and working-class voters turned away from Alex Salmond and to the safer promise of change from Gordon Brown and Jim Murphy in the Better Together campaign for more devolution powers. If the change is handled right by people that are trusted, the change will meet with approval from both the middle and working classes. And, and Matthew Elliott, um, what I will do for all Time subscribers who are um, uh, listening to this podcast, if they go to thetimes.co.uk, I'll put up a few links to articles. One of them is an article you wrote for the Conservative Home mm. website for 10 lessons from the Scottish campaign for the possible EU vote. We haven't got time here to go no. through all of them, but what would be the one or two big lessons you would say for, for the in-out campaign? Well, perhaps I can pick up on a few of the points that you made. I mean, first of all, the question is quite clear in James Wharton's e-referendum bill. The inside will be the yes campaign, according to that question. So it looks like there will be an advantage for in on that. When it comes to the, the working class vote, I think the key driver there will be the question of border control and immigration. And is David Cameron able to get some powers back over controlling Britain's borders? That will be a key one there. And as to your point about, the, um, about radical political change, I think what the out campaign will probably try and do is to say that the status quo isn't an option, that if we stay in the EU, the EU's going to keep on centralising, that we won't be able to be a non-Eurozone member for very long and we'll have to join the Euro, and that actually out uh, would be a, an equal level of change and actually more better suited for the globalised world now when the economy is growing outside the EU. One of the key lessons, I think, from the Scottish referendum is the important role of business. Because, of course, people are concerned about their jobs and uh, the, the money in their pockets. Mm. And I think that's why, um, when it comes to the EU referendum, uh, actually showing that the business community, that there are some people in the business community who would be happy to leave the EU, who actually see a world for the UK outside of the EU, trading with the rest of the world, and that's a better future. That'll be a key challenge for the Out campaign to fulfil. And as a leader of Business for Britain, you could be playing quite a big role in that. <laughs> we'll see which side I'm on. <laughs> Matthew Marcus, thank you very much. Thank you. 
So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week from Birmingham and the Conservative Party Conference. All it leaves me to say is please go to the times.co.uk comment central to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. And also thanks to Dave McGuire and Dan Lloyd for putting this together. Goodbye. I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.